Today we're going to be visiting a portion of Scripture that's found in Luke 2, and if you'd open your uh, Bibles together with me, Luke 2, 41 through 52, there's something about opening God's Word together and uh, something about it as a large group that as we actually flip to it, as we, as, we, uh, as we stare at the words of God, that we can be encouraged together as a family. And so I'd encourage you to do that, that we would diligently seek God together, that we would find him this morning in these words. And so Luke 2, we're going to start in verse 41 and go through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be with the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him, and among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw this, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And when he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? And they did not understand this saying that he had spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In the midweek email this week, I made some references to those uh, Oscar awards that my family saw uh, while we were traveling down in Florida. Just about every souvenir gift shop that we walked into had these uh, different little uh, fake Oscar awards, best grandparent. Uh, there was one, I think, that said something about coolest nephew. I don't... Do you guys buy stuff from your nephews and nieces? Coolest nephew, cool aunt, uncle, and number one dad, of course, uh, was among them. But as I was studying the text for, uh, for this week, I had a hard time not thinking about another kind of, uh, I don't know, what, what is that uh, little... Uh, cliche term that sometimes we hear. The, this one actually uh, you probably more often hear uh, as a schoolyard taunt, but the one that I kept thinking of was, my dad can beat up your dad. You guys ever heard of that one? Uh, hopefully this is always hypothetical, Grayson. Um, uh, I'm not going to beat anybody's dad up for you. Um, I mean, I could, but I won't. <clears throat> But I don't recall seeing that one specifically on any of these uh, awards as we were walking around. But it was hard not to think about that term in the context of the story found in Luke 2, where Jesus himself, as a boy of age 12, begins to really tease out that his true father isn't Joseph. He uses what comes across here, I think, as antagonizing language. In verses 48 through 49, Luke records him saying, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And this is Jesus' response. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Or 
Some translations say, in my father's house. And, and that's the same idea here. They're synonymous, and we're going to dive into that a little bit later. But as a father, I think hearing these words, I would have been crushed. Mary refers to Joseph as your father, but Jesus looks right past it and says, of course you would find me in the temple. I'm in my father's house. I'm in my father's business. Maybe you should have started here. At the very least, maybe you should have made sure I was with you before I left. Right, I think, um, I, I don't think I can imagine the feeling that Joseph would have felt and would have carried here knowing that he indeed wasn't Jesus' biological father. As a father, it's my desire to provide for my children, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, to give them good gifts, as Matthew 7:11 says, but not just so that they'll spend more time with me, not just so that they'll spend more time doing the things I'm doing or picking out the number one dad trophy for me or buying me a my dad can beat up your dad t-shirt. My heart for my children is that they would ultimately glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so ultimately, my job as a father is not to help them fall more in love with me but instead to help them fall in love with a father that isn't me. Regardless of what my business here is on earth, my fatherhood, my leadership, my discipleship, all of those things should be tied up in the father's business. And even for me, my business shouldn't be tied up in Gary Blackstone's. And that's my dad. And uh, ironically, a, a few of you actually work with my dad, and so I guess you are tied up in his business. But that's... Anyway, all of those things in my life, all of those things in the life of a believer should be tied up in God's business, in the business of pointing people towards the finished work of Jesus. And this morning, I want to approach this specific text with two topics in mind. First, parental authority and responsibility. And then second, I want to look at the Father's business and ultimately how Jesus plays a role in that. And so hopefully we're going to end up with a better understanding of the authority granted to you in God through Christ Jesus. Now, let me say that again. I want you to end up with a better understanding of the authority granted to you in God through Christ Jesus. And so I want to look first at parental authority. Life is, uh, is about perspective. One of my recent art fascinations is actually with perceptual art. I'm not sure if you guys have seen perceptual art or know what perceptual art is, but basically the artist takes thousands or hundreds or thousands of little pieces of whatever it is. Sometimes it's garbage, junk. Uh, sometimes it's little balls or poles or whatever it is. Maybe it has to do with uh, the, the image that he's trying to make, something poignant to the piece. He arranges them in a way that looks absolutely chaotic. You look at it from every angle except for one, and it looks chaotic. But I, I, I really am impressed by these things. So you look at them sideways, and it's just a mound of junk. But you're brought around to the place where you need to look at this image and you begin to see it in its fullness. And the, the cool thing about this art, I think, is that it really, require, it really requires the viewer to participate in the art. And in a way, 
to complete it. And so I want to help establish for you this morning some perspective as we enter into this story and ultimately as we help to identify some of the crazy, weird dynamics uh, as, I mean, none of us have had the actual Son of God as our Son, right? So I want to try to identify some of those dynamics for you. And it's a little strange to think about that. So let's spend a little bit of time here as we address how that impacts us as uh, as we head into the Father's work. So the first thing I want to look at is that Jesus grants authority. I think it could be assumed that, uh, that Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, is under the authority of his parents. The authority, uh, it says here that his parents went to Jerusalem every year, and this year was no different. And so part of the fam- as part of the family entourage, Jesus is with them still as part of Joseph's household. Until the age of 13, Jewish children uh, are still within their father's household. It's at 13 that they traditionally become men. They enter into adulthood. They become bar mitzvah is the word they use. They don't have a bar mitzvah. They become bar mitzvah because the word actually means son of the commandments. They become a son of the commandments. The bar mitzvah, it really uh, marks the assumption of religious and legal responsibility and obligations under Jewish law. A boy becomes responsible for his sin and for the sacrifice that his sin ultimately requires. Scripture tells us in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Colossians 1 if you want to turn there as well and keep a bookmark in Luke 2. Colossians 1, Paul tells us this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so in this section of Scripture, Paul here is specifically talking about Christ. And he says that by him, by Jesus, all things were created, including all authorities. All things were created through him and for him, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? That the same authority that Jesus is subject to here in Luke 2 is an authority that he himself established. And so at 12, who's in charge here? At 12, with boy Jesus, who's in charge? His parents, Joseph and Mary, and they're in charge according to an authority structure that Jesus himself established. There are all kinds of scriptures that support this specific authority structure, right? There's uh, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honor your father and your mother, for the days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's, there's many authority structures that we see throughout Scripture that encourage parental authority in the household. But know this, Jesus granted that parental authority, even technically to his own parents, Joseph and Mary. But what does he do with this authority? What does Jesus, he looks, he, he is the grantor of authority, and now he's met with this authority. What does he do with it? 
Authority ultimately can elicit two very different responses. Authority can uh, elicit the response of submission or the response of rebellion. And really, we, we don't know a ton about Jesus in his upbringing. Uh, we find two small stories in Luke chapter 2 about the years between his birth and when he began his ministry in his 30s. But earlier in Luke 2, it was likely the first time that, uh, that Jesus had ever been brought to the temple. He was there to be purified. He was, uh, he was actually quite young. Uh, he was there to be purified as the firstborn son, according to Jewish law. And at the end of this passage in verse 40, it states that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and favor of God was upon him. And so one can infer that Jesus was also seemingly an amicable child. We see that, uh, that there in, in this second portion of Scripture in Luke 2, that generally Jesus was, was likely trusted by his parents. There was an evident amount of trust that they found within him. They assumed that he was traveling somewhere with them in the big group of people as they left Jerusalem and headed back to Nazareth. And I, I don't understand why they would do that. As a parent, um, I love my son, but I'm going to have eyes on him from the moment we leave to the moment we get back. I mean, that's just, that's just me. I want to make sure he's with me. I want to care for him. I want to, uh, and maybe sometimes I don't trust him. But, but ultimately, Jesus was trusted. Jesus was shown to be a good son in that they traveled an entire day without seeing him or knowing he was there. I can tell you, like I said, that I would not want to be traveling back. I, I'm not a huge fan of having to do things twice. I would not want to go back uh, to Jer Jerusalem. And, and back then, of course, it was, it was walking. Nowadays, it's driving, but I don't want to drive either. I mean, you can ask Jess. I really hate driving. So, The idea of having to backtrack, a whole day gone, a whole day back, and then a day of looking for Jesus... His parents, I'm sure, sure, were certainly distressed, but also probably quite frustrated at this time. I know there's been times that we've had to look for our own children in a grocery store or something like that, and, and it's usually distress at first, and then the, about the time we find them. That's when it turns into that you know, righteous anger, I think. But sometimes you have to look for your children, and so Jesus is found by his parents <clears throat> here in, in this second section of Luke 2, and and, and we can look at this, um, we could look at this one of two ways. Mary looks at him and says, well, son, why have you treated us so? I, I, I don't deserve this. And, and, and this is asking their family to do something, uh, of course, that was unplanned and, and, and shouldn't have happened to begin with. But staying behind in Jerusalem isn't necessarily in and of its own thing rebellion. I can see with her frustration, and it begin easy to understand for us that her frustration and, and what Jesus did could be rebellion. However, I don't believe what we see here is rebellion in Jesus. Mary declares her frustration and her distress, not to mention the fact that he uses these words, so it could be easy for us to see that. However, verse 51 turns our eyes to Jesus' character. Verse 51 says this, and he went down, this is Jesus, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And I don't think this comment was intended to just be a, okay, well, now he's, 
Now he's submissive. He, he, he was a rebellious kid. He had that rebellious stint around five years old, and now he's a good kid. This is not, I don't believe, what, uh, what is trying to be written here. But instead, I think Luke, Luke was a physician. He was very, uh, he was very attendant to details. And so Luke is adding these words here that he was submissive because I believe this denotes that Jesus was continuing in his submission. He was continuing in the submission that he had been put under, the authority that he had been put under by himself to his parents. Jesus' submission, however, doesn't denote any type of inferiority. I want to make sure that we see that as well. Just as his blunt words aren't meant to declare any kind of superiority in who Jesus was. We must remember that Jesus himself establishes these structures and yet is also subject to them because of his humanity. This is who the Jesus in Luke 2 is. He's the creator, he's the author of authority, but he's also submissive in his humanity here. And so ultimately, what is Joseph's role? Let's bring Joseph back into the picture as this man who has been chosen to take on an adoptive fathership of the Son of God. Joseph's role um, here, Christ somehow has, been, uh, has emptied himself. When he came to earth, he's limited, he's restrained his use of his power and of his knowledge, and while still retaining this pointed focus on God's will, this is who Jesus is. And because of that, in doing so, as with any other child, there's going to be a necessity for young Jesus to be trained and to grow at the hands of his father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary. Ironically, we also know very little about Joseph's life, probably just as much as we know about Jesus' youth. But reflecting on the book of Matthew, I want to turn our attention there for a moment. Jesus finds that Mary is pregnant, and it's recorded that he said this. Or, or, or this is recorded about him. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. And ultimately, we know that he doesn't divorce her, but the scripture says that he was a just man. He was a righteous man. And we also know that he went faithfully every year to Jerusalem to, reserve, uh, to observe the feast of the Passover like it was said in this text in Luke 2. And I believe Joseph was a man who took his responsibility seriously. That the authority given to him as a parent, even as an adoptive parent, he took very seriously. As parents, we are called to train up a child in the way he should go. And to follow the command in Deuteronomy 6, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. The scripture here in Deuteronomy is a call both to personal submission and a call to parents to discharge their duties faithfully. And so in two cases in Luke, the scriptures tell us that Jesus grew in wisdom and in strength, ultimately under the headship of Joseph. And so I want you to think again, can you even imagine 
Can you even imagine the place where Joseph would be? The inadequacy that I'm sure he felt in teaching, ultimately the savior of the world. I remember walking out of the hospital after we had Ellie. I remember getting home and setting her in her car seat on the floor and wondering what in the world do we do next? Not to mention the fact that why, why, would, they let, why would they let us take a baby out of this hospital? We should have to pass a test or something. I mean, I felt unprepared. I felt ill-equipped, and I'm sure many of you as parents have felt the same thing, but that was just for my child not the savior of the world. Joseph willingly steps into this humbling role, and it's in a way that I I doubt that I, at my age, have the maturity even now to do. I believe that he embraced the sentiment that Paul writes about later on to the church in Corinth when he said, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that, we, that is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. Joseph found sufficiency not in himself, but instead through faith in this Father, this father that Jesus himself speaks of. And so the conjunction of Joseph's faithfulness and Jesus' wisdom is best seen in the verses of 46 and 47. It says this, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Twelve is the age of my daughter. I don't know if she'd be heading into the most intense Bible study that we offer and, and acting that way. Yet this is what Jesus does. And so we see this diligence of human parents and simultaneously the spirit of work within young Jesus as we see this amazement come out in this 12-year-old boy. What we see here is that both Joseph and, and Jesus ultimately are submitting to the authority of God. Jesus sees his father's business as his business, and Joseph sees his business ultimately as his responsibility as a parent. Still, however, there are, is some confusion with the heart of Joseph and Mary. Right In verse 50 it says, And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. All right. So the the saying that he spoke to them about being in my father's house. And so Jesus makes this claim that he was about his father's business. He was in his father's household. And that might seem clear to us because we refer to this church building as the father's house. Yet... I think it's a little bit more nuanced. The connotation that we have today, I don't believe existed in that time. So to say that we were in my father's household meant something different than just being part of the church. In an article titled The Family of New Testament Times, Peter Lampe, who was was the director of the Institute of Early Christian and Judaic Studies, wrote this. In the craftsman's household, the labor was specialized. 
Work and production mainly took place within the framework of private households. Often a household was comprised of a workshop in which slaves and freedmen of the family labored. During the day, the children scurried around the workshop, and these businesses were sometimes in families for generations. And so to be in your father's house or to be about your father's business more likely denoted this kind of familial intertwining of life and faith. And so as we begin to see this divergence within Jesus' life as he approaches manhood, then for the first time in Scripture, he begins to identify himself directly as the Son of God and not man. And so I want to look a little bit more about what Joseph's work was. We see what Joseph's role was as a parent, but when we think about Joseph's work, let's, uh, let's have a conversation about what that looked like. Most of you have probably read that Joseph was a carpenter. In Matthew, uh, Matthew 13, the crowd identifies Jesus there as uh, the carpenter's son. In Mark 6, it actually refers to Jesus himself as a carpenter. And the Greek word here is tekton, which means a worker in wood. And at this point, Jesus is now in his 30s. And so shift from 12-year-old Jesus who says, I'm about my father's business, to 30-year-old Jesus uh, who has been taught the family business, right? Joseph not only taught Jesus the things of, the spiritual things, but he also instructed him as a good father would in the family business. Early in rabbinic texts, uh, it's implored that parents would, uh, in parenting, uh, you'd both address the physical and the spiritual. One text says, Uh, He who does not teach a craft to his son almost teaches him to become a robber. So so your livelihood was important. Your livelihood was taught in the home, and that's what they were trying to encourage there. And then another one says, fitting is learning in the Torah along with a craft. For the labor put into the two of them makes one forget sin. And so the family business was a way of life in these times. Today, uh, long-lived family businesses don't uh, exist. They're, well, I mean, they do, but they're much rarer. I was reading in Family Business Magazine, and I found that there's about 105 companies that exist today in the United States uh, that are as old as 1855 or before, and they stayed within the same family, which is kind of, kind of interesting. About 105 families. Uh, lots of them were farms, um, funeral homes. That was the other. I'm not sure what that says about family business. Lots of funeral homes. I was intrigued to see that S.W. Collins, our very own S.W. Collins, is on that list. Uh, that was 1844. And, uh, and then ultimately at the top of that list, uh, the number one I was pretty excited was uh, Zildjian Cymbal Company. So I'm a drummer, and I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, Zildjian is now here in the U.S., but they can trace their roots back to 1623 in Constantinople. Uh, they were making symbols uh, back then. The alchemist Avidus I actually was, uh, was the symbol maker for, um, for the sultan of the Ottoman Empire, and he named him Zildjian, which means uh, symbol maker. And so it's been, that, that business has been in generation uh, in the family for 15 generations. Avidus Zildjian being the first. I think, uh, I think the lady's name is Craig Zildjian. Uh, is the current uh, CEO of the company. But crazy to think about the length of time that businesses used to stay within the households. But that used to be the way it was, that households were built upon. You didn't think, okay, well, what do I want to be when I grow up? It was, well, my dad's a, 
My dad's a carpenter, so I guess I'm going to be a carpenter. Or I, my dad's a mason, so I've got to be a mason. Or my dad's a, a physician, so I'll be a physician. You learn from your father and your father's business. Joseph faithfully entrusted his household trade to his son, Jesus. And I think this continues to speak of Joseph's faithfulness to God and also to Jesus' submission to his earthly father. So the other side of that is we see Joseph's work, but what is God's work? If Jesus says that I'm about my father's business, I'm about my father's household, what is God's work? One night in Chicago, uh, a few years, well, many years ago, D.L. Moody, if you know who he is, was on his way home uh, when he saw a man leaning against a light post. And he walked up to this man and he puts his hand on this man's shoulder and he says, young man, are you a Christian? This man gets all frustrated. He, he jumps up, he flies into a rage, he doubles up his fist and Moody thinks he's going to get thrown into the ditch. And Moody says, I'm so sorry, I, I, I thought it was a proper question, I'm sorry that I offended you. And the man said, mind your own business. D.L. Moody's response was, it is my business. Ephesians 2.10 says this, his workmanship, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are works that God has planned for you to accomplish today, witnessing, giving, encouraging, loving And it's vitally important that you are faithfully doing God's work where there's still time. Even as a 12-year-old, Jesus recognized the urgency of his father's business. God's business is rescuing people. John 6.40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. These are... Jesus' words. God's ultimate game plan was at work even in 12-year-old Jesus as he was prepared to bear the full weight of the sin of the world, your sin upon a cross. That's the lasting foundation. It wasn't a good symbol recipe. The lasting foundation that Jesus, that God builds his business upon is the death of of Jesus Christ, that he would use fallen man ultimately, just as he used Joseph, to prepare others to know and to follow him through his son Jesus. That is the work of God. And so what does that mean for us? What was Jesus' work? And how is, it, how is that our work? It's the hardest part here. Because this is where obedience and submission lead. Obedience and submission ultimately lead to death. And I love this passage here in Philippians uh, chapter 2. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality God with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Guys, this is what he did for you. And you know what? This is what he also did for the people that he's calling you to draw to him, 
as well. It's what Matthew 16 instructs us, right, right, right? For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? And so what business? What business are you about? What business are you ultimately, are we as a church, ultimately submitting ourselves to? Are we submitting ourselves to Jesus' work here on earth? Are we submitting ourselves to our own work here on earth? Are we submitting ourselves to something more nefarious than that? Jesus' life, Jesus' work was filled with examples while he was here. Examples of sacrifice, not for personal gain, but instead according to God's will. He didn't just sacrifice so that he looked good. He sacrificed so God looked good. Another example that Jesus leaves us with is that we must too increase in the knowledge of God. So as a 12-year-old boy, he gives us this example. Just as Jesus himself grew in the knowledge and wisdom, we too are called to do the same. Young Jesus in the temple sought to be among people of wisdom. And secondly, he was not merely just listening to them passively, listening to the words of the wise, but he was interacting. He was asking questions. He was interested in knowing. He was actively pursuing this knowledge in God. And so for you today, are you faithfully pursuing a knowledge in God? Are you actively pursuing a knowledge of God? And what are you doing with that knowledge? The second example I think we see in what, uh, in who Jesus is, is what he did with his knowledge. Theologian J.B. Lightfoot says, the end of all knowledge is conduct. What I don't want you to hear here is go work harder. I don't think that's what J.B. Lightfoot meant. I don't think that's what Jesus would intend. See, where we get this knowledge and conduct stuff wrong is when we look at our conduct and it becomes drudgery. Or our response to the gospel of Jesus fails to end in celebration. Church, we're warned that what we are called to do is hard. That the people that we're called to witness to are going to be difficult. And that ultimately what he's calling us to do must be done. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called. You. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. It does say might, but you should follow in his footsteps. Don't use that as an out, that you might follow in his footsteps. I don't know. I'll let somebody else do it. If you have no plans to live a life of sacrifice, then I'm afraid you don't know Jesus. And what's worse is I'm afraid that he doesn't know you. Jesus didn't simply define himself by his earthly father's work. That wasn't his full worth and it shouldn't be yours either. Instead, Jesus took upon himself the literal sin of the world. He is what you need. Jesus Christ's sacrifice is what you need and it is what the world around us needs. 
Mark, at this point, records in his gospel for us that his family thinks he's lost his mind. I don't know if you've read that section of Mark, but in Mark chapter 3, he starts telling people that he is the bread of life, that he's come down from heaven. He's getting much more aggressive about his uh, sonship. He's come from, down from heaven. He's going to do the will of him who sent, uh, who sent him. And the overwhelming response of those around him is to identify him as the son of Joseph rather than the son of God. We know this guy. Don't, we know his mom and dad is Joseph and Mary's kid. How could he possibly come down from heaven? We've, he's been here the whole time. We know him. He was, we've seen him around. He was a little kid, remember? Brothers and sisters, the world doesn't get to define us. It didn't get to define Jesus, and our identity should be firmly wrapped up in God as Jesus was. When Jesus' family finally reached him, they thought he was losing it, like I said. This was his response to to them. The crowd said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat in the room, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. The beautiful thing that Jesus does here is he extends his family. He invites them into his mission. And we see Jesus operating this way, right? Leading up to this point, he has been drawing in his disciples. He's been establishing this extended family-like group on mission with him. Some of them actually left behind their family businesses to join Jesus' household. Quite literally, Jesus tells Simon and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And what'd they do? It says in scripture that they immediately left their nets and followed him. And in the same way, also James and John. And what I think is even more important for us to see about James and John is when James and John are called... Their father, Zebedee, was with them. It says that they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with his hired servants, and they followed him. Fathers, I'm not trying to get your kids to ditch you. I'm not trying to get them to spend more time with somebody else. But Scripture does show us that it's more important to draw your children into a place of loving the father falling more in love with the Father than even ourselves. At a young age, Jesus realized what was ultimately important. What was ultimately important about life, and he began to draw people into that. He began to draw people into that understanding and into that knowledge, and he reminds us in Matthew 6, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, not about what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Are you seeking his kingdom first? Are we willing to set aside our family business? 
Are we willing to set aside the works of this world for the sake of his kingdom? Jesus was clear about the mission that he was sent on. I think we can read scriptures and we can see that. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's the mission statement for his family business. And therefore, as kingdom-pointed families, our purpose is to seek people who are far off from God and invite them into the Father's household. To invite them into the Father's house, not just church, not just this building, but to invite them into the household of faith. To participate in the Father's business on mission. Scripture over and over is an instructive tool to help us know God better. And we see it over and over again that his work was ultimately tied up in the death and resurrection of Jesus to reconcile you. No matter how far you are from God, you're, you, you think you sin this much or you think you sin this much or you think you sin so much that you can't even enter into a church. I think I've, I, I've heard that. I've heard people say, I don't know, the church will start to set on fire if I go in there. God, his mission is for people who are far off from him. And so ultimately, we are called to join him on mission, just like he called Simon and Andrew and James and John and the disciples and the many disciples, the extended family that grew beyond that and the extended family that we have here as a church, we are called to go and do likewise, to seek the lost and to draw them into a better understanding of who God is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that your goodness and mercy are evident in its words. Lord, I pray that those who have opened God's word this morning and, and read those words along with me, I pray for those who have, I pray that everyone, Lord, who have heard your word testified to and proclaimed this morning would go and would take it Take it in a way, Lord, that uh, shows reverence and shows desire and diligence, Lord, to know more about you. Help us to learn from 12-year-old Jesus that he wanted more than just a head knowledge of who God was. He asked questions. He surrounded himself with wise people. He allowed himself to be a child who scurried about his father's household, learning the tools of the trade. And so, Lord, as we see that example, help us also to know that that's what you've called us each to. To know you better. To tell others about you so that they know you better. Lord, it would be such a disservice for us to walk out today and have no desire to be changed. to have no desire to, to sacrifice for you. And so I pray, Lord, that in this moment you would change hearts, that you would transform lives, that as we see our family business, you would transform that even into yours. Lord, we love you this morning. We thank you for our own fathers. We thank you for the example that they have been to us. 
And we ultimately pray, Lord God, that their work is to point us to you, to fall more in love with you. Help us to do that faithfully as we go. In your name, amen.